beginning at verse 13. <coughs> then he went out again by the sea, and all the multitude came to him, and he taught them. As he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. So he arose and followed him. Now it happened as he was dining in Levi's house that many tax collectors and sinners also sat with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many, and they followed him. And when the scribes and Pharisees saw him eating with the tax collectors and sinners, they said to his disciples, How is it that he eats and drinks with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The disciples of John and of the Pharisees were fasting. Then they came and said to him, Why do the disciples of John and of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, or else the new piece pulls away from the old, and the tear is made worse. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, or else the new wine bursts the wineskins, the wine is spilled, and the wineskins are ruined. But new wine must be put into new wineskins. Thanks, Dave. Let's pray before we study God's word together. Lord God, as we continue through Mark's gospel this morning, we pray that you would grant us incredible understanding of your word. We pray that we might see our needs, see you meeting our needs, and be all the more amazed at who you are. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Politicians, journalists and delivery drivers. Do you know what those three groups of people have in common? According to a poll that Channel 7 did, they are the three least trusted professions in Australia at the moment. Politicians, journalists and delivery drivers. Now, at the other end of the scale, we find people like doctors, nurses and paramedics get the top three spots. Now, I'm not sure, I argued about this with Anna, but apparently that's where they belong. (laughs) Ministers of religion uh, and priests apparently go in the same category, and we came in 15th spot, which I thought was a little bit unfair, but it's a pass mark, so I can live with it for now. At the, the lower end of the scale, we find politicians, journalists, and delivery drivers. Now, why am I talking about this? Well, these are a bunch of the least trusted, most disliked people. And as we look at Mark's Gospel, we see the most disliked and least trusted people coming through here. We see them eating and drinking with Jesus. Tax collectors. Now, no one likes the taxmen. Some taxmen, they're just hard to work with. Even when we deal with accountants, to do our tax return, we sometimes walk away frustrated. I had a tax return a few years ago. I didn't proofread the form properly before filing it. 
the guy misunderstood what I said when I was a pastor, and he said I was a pastor maker. So the ATO think I spent a year making pasta. But we, we see this. The tax man does stuff to us. They, they take our money. And, and we might see some benefits from this. We see roads. We see schools. We see law enforcement, which when done properly is there to protect citizens. We see defence forces to protect our country, to safeguard what God has blessed us with. But we just don't like the tax man. And I think if you were to take our dislike of the tax man and multiply it by at least 20, it'd be in the ballpark of the level of distrust and just vitriol that these guys would have been on the receiving end 2,000 years ago. If Channel 7 on their poll had a 31st spot, they probably would have fit in there. Or they'd probably even lower if possible. As far as the Hebrews when Jesus was walking the earth were concerned, these guys were the absolute scum of the earth. These were people who charged their fellow countrymen unfair amounts of money so they, they could send the prophets off to Rome. Their very presence was a reminder to the Hebrews that they didn't live freely in their own country, that they were subject to Rome. As long as they passed on enough to Rome, they could skim whatever they wanted off, off, off the top for themselves. And they did. To, to paraphrase slightly what Matthew Henry says, he says that, the tax collector of the time of Jesus was not a good man. No good person would have taken on this job. Now, you might be looking at this going, well, it's easy to just not like somebody because we have mob mentality sometimes and someone says someone's bad and we believe they're bad straight away, but sadly the reputation of these guys is pretty fairly deserved. Now, I'm emphasising that this morning. Because we need to understand what it would have looked like, particularly Matthew 13, uh, Matthew, Mark 2, verses 13 through to 17, where Jesus is sitting and eating and drinking with tax collectors and, and, and sinners. We often fall into the trap of reading the Bible through our own cultural lens of what we live with today. And we sometimes miss the importance and the greater significance of things that happened right there. But we need to understand as much as we can the full significance of what Jesus did is what Mark and every gospel writer wants us to understand. So we look at Mark 2, verse 13. And Mark resets us from where we were last week. Last week, uh, Jesus has healed the paralysed man. And as incredible as the healing of the paralysed man's paralysis was, the greater healing came in verse 5, where Jesus said, your sins are forgiven. There was spiritual healing shown last week. That was a greater healing that we saw there. And Mark uses verse 13 to reset us after we see that. After that event, Jesus went out by the sea, and again we see him continuing to teach. He is teaching people's God's word. He is authoritatively teaching people's God's word. And that there's a response to that. There's a response from all sorts of people. We read a few verses down that the tax collectors and the sinners, that they actually followed Jesus. They were hearing it. The scribes and the Pharisees, they were there keeping an eye, making sure it was okay. Some of John the Baptist's disciples, they were there following along, wondering what's happening here. And then we get to verse 14 and we really see the tax collectors. We see Jesus seeing Levi, the son of Alphaeus. Levi, who we might better know as Matthew, who actually wrote one of the Gospels. But when we see him, he is at 
the tax office. Now, I'm not sure if it would be as nice as the, the tax office down in Canberra. We used to walk past, there was a nice cafe next to it. I think they had a lot of money from the tax office. There's a nice cafe next to the tax office down in Canberra. We live there. Fantastic looking building. I'm not sure what this would have looked like. But Jesus sees Levi, the son of Alphaeus, at the tax office. He's at the place where he is practicing his habit of robbing his fellow countrymen, is how we could probably look at this. It's an interesting person to say, follow me to, isn't it? Now, the rabbis of the day, Jesus wasn't unique in saying, follow me. It was a common practice, or semi-common practice for a teacher to come up to somebody and say, follow me, and always expect a response, but it wasn't always guaranteed. But they'd often be quite selective about who they chose to follow them. But here we see Jesus come up to a tax collector of all people and say, follow me. This is Jesus who previously, as we saw in, uh, in chapter 1 particularly, denied the testimony of demons to say that he is the Holy One of God. Now, we're not given an explanation as to why he does that, but it seems most likely that, it's a, that, that their character would lead to a bad witness of who he is, an unbelievable witness. It's not a credible witness. But now, after we silence demons and said, don't tell people I'm the Holy One of God, Jesus calls a tax collector, an untrustworthy, hated, if not disliked at best, hated most likely man to follow him. And the follow me is an abbreviated version of what we see Jesus extend to those two sets of brothers in chapter 1. It's that same core message, follow me. And the response we see from Levi is the same. He gets up and he follows Jesus. Now just quickly, I think that what Jesus is doing here, in inviting a tax man of all people to come and follow him, is his way of showing people that he changes lives for the better, no matter who you are or what you've done. All can be forgiven by God. This is Jesus who has just said to a paralyzed man in verse 5 of this chapter, your sins are forgiven, son, calling a tax collector to follow him. Levi, Matthew, as I said, goes on to write a gospel account. An incredible response that this man would leave his tax office, his source of income, and follow Jesus. They go back to a house, and there's a whole heap of other tax collectors and sinners who are there for dinner. Now, these guys probably competed with each other. It was a cutthroat industry. But who else are they going to actually spend time with? You almost get the idea that they built up a relationship with one another where they leave the work competition at work, but because no one else will talk to them, they need company with one another, so they hang out together. So the tax collectors and sinners are all there. Their company with each other from the response of the, the Pharisees that we see here, is probably normal that those people hang out over there with others of their filthy kind. What's unheard of at this dinner is a teacher who is respected and trusted and gaining a following going and having a meal with tax collectors and sinners. It's unheard of, and it seems to be, from what the Pharisees say, it's unacceptable Their behaviour might rub off on this man. He is discrediting himself. He is discrediting his teaching. Nothing he says is trustworthy because of who he is eating with right now. This seems to be where the scribes and where the Pharisees are at. 
behind their, their comments in verse 16 is the idea that, that Jesus simply cannot be a good teacher, let alone a good man, if he is going to associate so closely with messy, broken, untrustworthy sinners. They don't deserve anything good. And if you're with them, you are not good and you deserve all the same bad things we think they deserve is the attitude of the Pharisees. But Jesus hears this. Jesus hears this. We read in verse 17, and he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. It is not healthy people who need a doctor, it is sick people who need a doctor. Levi, Matthew, as we later know him, Matthew needed a doctor. He needed a spiritual doctor. And Jesus, again, in what we've seen with his interaction with the paralyzed man, has shown himself as that doctor. Every tax collector and sinner who was there in that room needed a doctor. Every Pharisee who was looking on at this situation, condescendingly talking down to these people, perhaps rightly ascertaining that there was sin and guilt there, even they needed a doctor. And we look around this room right now and we look at ourselves and we realise that we need a doctor. Jesus responds to the Pharisees. It's not, not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. You have proof that I can forgive sin. Verse 10 of this chapter but that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. Jesus said to the paralytic in verse 11 then, I say to you, arise, take up your bed, go to your house. Verse 12, the paralyzed man gets up proving that Jesus has this power. What are you criticizing me for? I'm the one they need. Now I said that the Pharisees need a doctor. Jesus is a great teacher. Jesus is a fantastic teacher. He's a good teacher because of what he taught. And we know that he taught authoritatively. But good teachers also teach their students how to think. They give them the information they need and they teach them how to think. A lady called Gwen Dewar, who has a PhD in education, whatever that means, uh, she wrote something in 2008 and said that students become remarkably better problem solvers when we teach them to analyse categories, create categories and classify items appropriately, identify relevant information, construct and recognise valid deductive arguments, test hypotheses, recognise common, uh, common reasoning fallacies and distinguish between evidence and interpretations of evidence. Now that might seem very dry and boring, but what we see here is Jesus ticking all those boxes. Jesus has given the relevant information. It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but it's the sick. And in that, he's been given both information and an analogy to be analysed. 
He's created categories and classified items appropriately. He gives valid arguments. So if the scribes and the Pharisees, and if we, for that matter, were to test the hypothesis here that it's a sick who need a doctor, we can't just look at other people all the time. We look at ourselves and go, we need a doctor too. Maybe we're a picture of physical health. That perfect human specimen as some people consider themselves. I have a friend who genuinely thinks that about himself. It's a scary conversation to have. Even if we are that perfect picture of physical health, we think about what Jesus says and what he has just done. Before Jesus healed the paralyzed man of his paralysis, he healed his sin. The lesson is that we need to have our sins forgiven. And that goes for every single person other than Jesus. And we look at this clearly and objectively and we see that there can be no other interpretation of this lesson, both from our lives or the lives of anyone else around us. We're sinners. We need a doctor. The tax collectors and the sinners need a doctor. The Pharisees need a doctor. And the scribes and the Pharisees, they do not like this. I rarely go to the dentist. They're they're scary people. I told my dentist that last time I was there. Please don't ask how long ago it was. I need to do better. But last time I was with the dentist, the dentist was telling me, I was asking him about how his day had been. I said, what are some of the frustrations you have as a dentist? This is before he's playing with my mouth so we could still talk at this point. And he said that the patient who'd come in before him was just the example of someone who would not listen to his diagnosis. The patient who'd come in before me was an elderly gentleman and he ground his teeth down to stubs. And then he said, the only way you can do that is to grind your teeth. This man responded with indignation, no, I don't grind my teeth. You have no idea what I'm doing. You don't have cameras in my room. You don't have microphones in my room overnight. You have no proof that I have ground my teeth. And then I said, well, even if you haven't, here's something that can help you. No, I don't need that to help me. We don't know if there's anger coming through from the Pharisees here. But there certainly seems to be at least indignation. No, you're wrong. We're okay. We are good even. We don't need a doctor. But we look at this and we see a note of caution coming through here to make sure that when we hear those hard truths about ourselves, that we aren't perfect, that we need help, that Jesus alone can provide that help, We need to make sure that anger and indignation are not our responses to it. And what's great about this is Jesus doesn't just say, you're sick and you need a doctor and leave it there. He doesn't just leave it as, you know I'm the doctor because of what you just saw me do with that paralysed man or heard me do with that paralysed man the next town over. Jesus tells us how we find help from the doctor. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. It's through repentance that we find healing from sin. Repentance 
and belief. Belief that Jesus, this amazing teacher who, who teaches us as well through what we read here, has the power and has the authority to save our souls from the darkest and deepest sins that we have ever committed. Because indignation just leads to continual pushback. Now, I know I had a bit of a whinge about the, the break, of the, where the passage break was located a few weeks ago. But they can actually be helpful as we read through the Bible. And if you just look quickly at the next few bits, we see the indignation of the Pharisees and the scribes are often very closely linked with the Pharisees, is that they begin to push back. They begin probing, they begin testing of Jesus. They don't like it. They refuse to believe the objective evidence and they try to push back. It doesn't work, but they try. The indignation presents itself over and over again. The next few parts of Mark, if you look at them, you, you see that probing and testing. It seems to be stemming from a hope that from the Pharisees that, that Jesus will fail. Now, how sad is that? Hoping that someone will fail. That's where they're at. And how much worse is it they're hoping that the only righteous person to ever walk the face of the earth would fail? It's actually a disgusting attitude and one that's not just left 2,000 years ago. So verses 18 to 22, we see that present itself a little bit more. The Pharisees and John's disciples are fasting, but not Jesus' disciples. What Mark records for us is that the Pharisees come to Jesus and say, why are your, why are your disciples not fasting? Why don't they fast? And you can almost hear a, a sneering disdain coming through here. Clearly, Jesus. Clearly, if your disciples don't fast, they are far, far, far less spiritually right people than our disciples. They are far less spiritually right people than John's disciples. Again, underscoring that is do better, mate. Get your people into line. Get them into line. Now, something interesting here, if we read all the Gospels together, in Matthew 9, we see that it's uh, John the Baptist's disciples who come and ask this question of Jesus as well. So, Matthew focuses on John the Baptist's disciples asking this, and we see here that it was the Pharisees asking this. So, it wasn't just one group of people asking this question. And Matthew 9 has fleshed out a few more things uh, that have happened around Jesus' ministry up to this point. And for, for John the Baptist's disciples, at this point in time, John was in prison. This was not a time of joy for them, so prayer and fasting would have been the norm. But while that's the norm, they fell into that same trap of probing and testing Jesus that the Pharisees wanted them to. In John Calvin's commentary, he says that they actually were ensnared by this trap of Satan here. The question is wrong. For John's disciples, John is in prison. It is a sad time for them. But for Jesus and his disciples, mourning at this time would not have fit the occasion. And we see Jesus explain why. He explains that the bridegroom is there with them. 
the bridegroom has entered the room. This is the celebration. This is the reception that we look forward to at weddings. Sometimes you go to weddings and you get through the ceremony and think, oh, that's finally over. We can eat. It's a time of celebration, rejoicing. You can actually talk to the bride and groom, spend time with them, rejoice with them. That's what Jesus is saying here. This is a time for celebration. The Messiah is there. There is joy to be found in Jesus' presence. There is genuine joy to be found in Jesus' presence. But he also hits both the Pharisees and his disciples with that truth that it won't always be a time of joy. It won't always be a joyful time for his followers. There is a time to rejoice and there is a time to mourn. We see that wisdom from Proverbs coming through here. There are times where it's appropriate to do one or the other. There are times where it's appropriate to do both at the same time. Now, what does that look like? Well, we're about to have the Lord's Supper after worship today, aren't we? We're going to remember in the Lord's Supper the complete freedom from sin that we have. That the price was paid for us. How can we not rejoice that God did that for us? At the same time, we remember with solemnity and a sense of mourning that Jesus hung on the cross for our sins. That the perfect one died there for us. He died there because of us. Jesus is correct. Now, the current lack of fasting is not inappropriate for his disciples. It is entirely appropriate. And one commentator helps point out that we look at this and we perhaps see this question of, Jesus, why are your disciples not fasting? Perhaps we assume they're just partying the whole time, living it up. Excessive food, excessive drink, just loving life to the fullest. But Jesus and his disciples weren't exactly living the high life. They, they, they were itinerant people. They travelled from town to town. They were dependent on people where they went to feed them. And sometimes that might have been more, sometimes that might have been less. And other than the, the few miracles Jesus did on the food front, this is how they lived. It wasn't living in excess, as if that's another assumption behind the, the question of the Pharisees to throw further doubt onto Jesus. And of course, there's more here. We see Jesus talking about the new and the unshrunk cloth being sewn together. Just not going to work. What happens when you wash it? It's going to tear. The fabric won't shrink at the same time. It won't work. It's going to be a disaster. You don't put new wine into an old wineskin because it's just going to burst. And that's not a happy experience. You say you don't put a new cup of coffee into your old disposable cup of coffee. I saw something this week that said adults dropping coffee is like children losing a balloon. That same sense of sadness and depth of grief that something good is gone. There is a time to mourn. And fasting, which is, when, when done well, the scripture outlines, is always to be accompanied by prayer. Fasting and prayer went hand in hand together. Times of dedicating ourselves more than usual to God through those times. But fasting during a time of celebration that just doesn't mix. 
Calvin says that what Jesus says, just as uh, John Calvin says, it rests on this consideration. That fasting and prayers are adapted to sorrow and adversity. Extraordinary prayers, I mean, such as I mentioned here. Christ certainly intended to accustom them by degrees to greater patience and to not lay on them a heavy burden until they gained more strength. We keep seeing the heart of Christ through this. His gentle care for his flock. Arguably a small physical flock at that point in time. But his beautiful, gentle, tender care of them. There was something new. Something exciting, a fulfilment happening in Israel at the time when Jesus walked those streets. And what an incredible thing to know. What an incredible thing to see that God still walks with us gently and continues to strengthen us. That he gives us those times of joy. That he can use those times to strengthen us and grant us Patience that we may not otherwise have had through those times of joy, that we might be able to, t- to cope with those times of testing and adversity and sorrow. We see his goodness. We see his grace. And once more, despite the testing, despite the probing, we see the beautiful heart of our Saviour. He is not unaware of the needs of, our, of his people. There is a lofty bar to enter into heaven. But Jesus is on his way, as we read Mark 2, to meet that standard for us. And after meeting that standard for us, just like he did with Matthew or Levi here, he reaches down. He grabs us by our filthy, sin-covered hands and lifts us out of sin and he cleanses us from sin just like he did with Matthew. And he continues to grant us strength for each day. Our hope, trust and pray that this is something that we can all prayerfully consider as we ourselves face testing and probing of our faith. I hope that we can come back to our great doctor in all that we face, our great healer, our wonderful deliverer, and keep saying thank you for what he has done, continuing in his love. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for these wonderful, beautiful things that we see here in Mark 2. We thank you that you are the healer. We thank you that there is no sin that we have committed that is outside of your expertise to deal with. You have dealt with sin once for all. We rejoice in your goodness. We rejoice in your grace. And we pray, O oh God, that each one of us would continue not to look to ourselves for whatever cures we might find to, to meet our current need, but that we might trust you, rely on you, and demonstrate our love for you in response to your love for us and all that we do. Help us with this, we pray. Amen.